the Pilot TV podcast this week, we are back saving the world with the Hargreaves clan in the Umbrella Academy Season 2, heading behind bars with Michael Sheen's serial killer in Prodigal Son, looking into a racially motivated murder in BBC One's not-a-film, Anthony, and welcoming back the Muppets as Kermit, Piggy, Fozzie and the gang make their triumphant return on Disney+. Plus. I'm James Dyer, and welcome to the Pilot TV Podcast, your weekly guide to all the TV that matters, as long as they don't feature people baking on demand or watching telly in their living rooms. Joining me on the show as we welcome Jim Henson's creations back to our screens are Pilot's very own pair of Muppets. Boyd, oh, who's your favourite Muppet? Um, Fozzie Bear. Any particular reason? Is it the bow tie? Is it the hats? Yeah, the whole look. Uh, <laughs> you dig yeah. his vibe. I dig his vibe. I dig that the fuzzy, fuzzy vibe, yeah. Yeah. Okay. It seems like a very benevolent bear. character. I think when he I, does, yeah, when he's I was the least up. twatish, I would say, yeah, of exactly. all the Muppets. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. That's, that's I think a good you'd fit. trust a good Fuzzy. Fit. Yeah. Uh, and before I ask this question, I almost certainly know where it's going. But Terry, which Muppet is your personal spirit animal? <laughs> Miss Piggy. You she's, are as ever surprising. She's a bad bitch. <laughs> She is. I mean, she's a little bit obnoxious, don't you think? Well, you know, if you were the only female Muppet and had to put up with, <laughs> with male Muppets all day long, imagine being that woman, then uh, then maybe you'd be a bit of a bitch about it. I must admit, it is pretty close to your general condition, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, is, she, is she a bit like Smurfette, like as the only... Are there any other women Muppets? There must be. Oh, yeah, there's the one, there's the hippie oh, one that looks like yeah, a member of ABBA. I don't know what her name is. basically Phoebe. Is that Phoebe her name? Muppet. No, Phoebe, Phoebe Muppet. Buffet. She's Phoebe Buffet Muppet. Oh, yes. Okay, if Phoebe fine. Buffet yes. were a Muppet, that's the Muppet yeah. she'd be. Yeah. yeah, with the fringe. Yeah. That one. And the yeah. weird okay. hat. She has weird anatomically correct tonsils, which I find oh. very disconcerting. <laughs> wow, I wonder where that's going. Yeah. yeah. No, but like when she talks, like it's, they put an awful lot of detail into a sort of mouth topography. It's uh, it's strange. <laughs> mouth topography. That's yeah. a phrase wow. I wasn't expecting What's this earlier. What's the dangly thing at the back wow. of your throat called? Yeah, um, tonsils. No, that's not a tonsil. The tonsils are the things on the side that they take out when you have tonsillitis. Like, what's the little dangly thing called? No one knows. No one. Right. Do you know what? I'm going to Google it. I want to know. Dangly thing at. <laughs> Back oh. of mouth. There we go. What's it called? Uh, uvula. That's it. An uvula. Oh. That's the thing. The little wobbly thing. That always, you know, like in Looney Tunes when they would scream and you'd see like little arms would come yeah. out and beat it like a chest. That thing. Yeah. But anyway, this Phoebe character has a very developed uvula. Good. Well, there you go. Good. Glad we've established that. Glad we have <laughs> established that. It's what every girl wants, James, a well-developed uvula. <laughs> She's called Janice, that Muppet, I think. Is it Janice? Yeah. <laughs> I love that. She's called Janice, that Muppet. He's <laughs> <laughs> like a character from a Guy Ritchie <laughs> film. <laughs> yeah, that Muppet. <laughs> Amazing, amazing. Right, right, right. Before we head into anything else, I believe it is time for the Queeby Challenge. So if any of you missed last week's podcast, uh, you would have missed the fact that when we discovered that Queeby had in fact soft launched, stealth launched, if you will, in the UK, that we would each of us download the Queeby app, exploit the free trial and watch a show, or at least a small segment of a show. So guys, what, what was your Queeby experience like? Tell me, review Queeby for me. What did it do for you? Right. So here's the good things, right? Incredibly easy to sign up. Like, mm. I hate sign-up processes. They're the bane of my life. This, I literally obviously downloaded the app, put in my email, pressed my little buy button, and it was on my phone. It's incredible. Really easy to use. Um, wished everything was as easy as that. And I watched... Um, the I watched Dummy, right? Which is yes. the Cody Heller 
comedy that a lot has been talked about because it stars Anna Kendrick um, as somebody who essentially talks to her boyfriend's sex doll. And the sex doll comes to life. It's kind of like a fucked up mannequin. So imagine mannequin, right? But Andrew McCarthy has a real life girlfriend and the real life girlfriend ends up having this friendship with Kim Cattrall. Um, It is... If we were reviewing this, right, as normal telly, I hate to use that phrase, but if we were reviewing this as normal telly, I would be raving about this. The writing (laughs) is incredible. It's so out there. There's a whole conversation about her boyfriend's sperm being stuck in the sex doll and how crusty it is and how she needs her to come and wash it out because otherwise he's going to be putting his dick in the pussy they say over and over again of the sex doll and then put it in her real life vagina and then she's going to get an infection there's like a hot it's so graphic it's so out there it's absolutely mad the whole thing is completely surreal it's like i slipped an acid or something and i watched two by accident because it just keeps going and you're like oh that was only six minutes great i'll just watch another um but here's the problem i hate still hate Nana's coming out with it, but I really fucking hate watching it on my phone. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I felt the entire time like I was being robbed of a real telly experience. And all I wanted to do was to watch it on a big telly. And I was like, can I plug my phone into the telly and put it on the telly and make it go bigger? Like, I cannot get over the experience of watching it on my phone. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. And yet it is one of the funniest things I've seen in God knows how long. And a Kendrick is amazing. The writing is genius. Like, Cody Heller should write all of the films and TV shows about women until the end of time. The woman is a genius. The idea is mental. But maybe that's the point, right? Is maybe Queeby is an opportunity to watch those shows that may not have got commissioned. I think this was originally a film and then was going to be another TV show. This could never exist on network TV. I'm not sure it could exist even, you know, on a Netflix. It's so out there. I, I struggle to see it on there. And maybe that's the point. Maybe it allows for more experimentation of content. And yet I'm de- oh, I'm like, I really want to watch the other episodes, but I really don't want to watch them on my phone. So I've been Googling, how do I watch Queeby not on the phone and put it on a telly? Which is the whole point of Queeby. Were you not interested by the fact that, and I kept doing this, the, the way you can watch it in landscape or portrait and it's perfectly framed in both. Yes. So I kept switching between them because like you go from your standard sort of 16-9 look in, in landscape. And then when you switch to portrait, they just zoom in on one person and it's really I... tight and it's quite intimate. And it's a re- I almost found, even though i hated watching it on my phone i found the portrait experience almost more interesting because it feels very personal and very in their face yes and yeah i i it's weird but yeah i'm with you 100 like i sat on the sofa and i watched it and i thought i can do this because it's literally seven minutes but mm. i just i can't imagine doing this long term but i suppose it's designed for commuting isn't it it's not designed for sofa watching you're supposed to be moving about doing things on a bus you want you've got seven minutes between you know angel and wherever it is your bus is going and you want to watch an episode of sex doll drama yeah i just i I know i I, like i can't get over the phone thing but you are right i have to say in that i was watching it portrait and i was like that looks like it's been shot for a phone and i know (laughs) obviously it must have been but it looks it partly looks like a home video and it looks like you're kind of spying on them almost. It's yeah. like the weirdest, most discombobulating thing, but it gives it a really different texture um, to telly. 
but you still know you're watching. T- I don't know. I can't explain it. It's yeah, trippy. it feels like doing FaceTime with Anna Kendrick. Like yeah. it's just a yes. very strange experience. <laughs> so I didn't watch Dummy after all of my banging on about Dummy last week. I uh, I didn't actually watch it. I ended up watching Most Dangerous Game with Liam Hemsworth. <laughs> And Christoph Waltz. And again, so the, the basic premise of this is Liam Hemsworth is a guy who's dying of cancer and he needs some money for experimental treatment. Like the plot in heavy, heavy air quotes is literally that. And so we go see Christoph Waltz, who I don't even know who he is. He's some kind of fixer for a loan. And Christoph Waltz says, no, I won't give you a loan. But tell you what, I will give your family millions if you allow my rich patrons to hunt you to death. <laughs> as most dangerous games. It's like the backstory behind uh, the John Woo movie, Hard Target. But it begins with Hemsworth in the office. So the thing with these, because they're in these little seven-minute chunks, like there's no attempt at establishing shots or establishing context. They just drop you right into the thick of it, and it just kicks off from the minute, well, certainly with this one. It just went, so it starts with Hemsworth. He just, right, yeah, so you're dying, you're cancer, you need money. Yes, yes, yes. Well, I want people to hunt you with guns till you die, but we'll give your family loads of money. I'm going to call the cops. Are you, though? You said you'd do anything for your family. Would you really? I'll be out on the balcony having a cognac. Come and see me if you change your mind. And then he, he pulls acting conflicted face, and then he goes out and stands next to him, looks out over the city. He's like, tell me more. And that's the whole first episode of Most Dangerous Game. <laughs> Seven minutes of drama packed into this tiny screen. And, I mean... I, I can I can almost imagine how this show plays out. I didn't watch a second episode because I just couldn't face it. But... um. It was the format. I think it's like what we've been talking about. The format did fascinate me. I thought it was, I thought what they set out to do, which is objectively lunacy, but what they've set out to do, they've actually done very well. Like they have genuinely created something that works on that format. Yeah. In terms of how long it is and in terms of how it's formatted for the screen. And I'm, and the app works really well. As you said, it's really easy to sign up to. I don't mind it, but it's just not. It goes against everything in my DNA. The thought of like watching this, like, high, like I don't want to see Christoph Waltz, you know, doing his best Blofeld at Liam Hemsworth on my phone, as lovely as my phone is. I want to see it on my TV. And it just, yeah, it doesn't do it for me. Boy, boy, what was your show? What did you watch? I watched um, 50 States of Fright. You didn't watch Chrissy's Court. No. Oh, my God. No. I mean, I was tempted. But 50 States of Fright is um, Sam Raimi's uh, series, which is an anthology horror show in which um, every story is set in a different state, hence the title. Um, And so there's, you know, there's one set in Kansas. The first one, the opening story is, this is the Golden Arm. So we talked about the Golden Arm a bit. Oh, yes, yes, yes. So the Golden Arm turns out to be part of 50 States of Fright. And the Golden Arm, the story of the Golden Arm, I shit you not, is that couple Travis Fimmel and Rachel Brosnahan a lovely couple kind of live in the woods somewhere in, well, in, in Michigan, in the state of Michigan. He decides he's going to chop down a massive tree in the woods nearby. And he decides that he's going to get his wife to, like, assist him in this. Obviously, as you do. A gigantic, massive fucking tree in the forest. It goes hideously wrong. Spoiler alert. The tree lands on her arm. He has to amputate it with an axe. Now, I have to say, this is a weird week for me because, double spoiler alert, there's another show we're going to get to later (laughs) on that has an amputation scene with an axe. I wasn't expecting two of those in the same week. And then this woman, Heather, played by Rachel Brosnahan, decides, fine, you've amputated my arm with an axe because you had to because a tree fell on it. But what I really need to happen now is I demand that you make a golden, an arm made of gold, 
as a replacement limb, and it has to be gold. And the, the justification for her wanting this in the script is really early on in one of the scenes. She's described as a woman who wants everything, and she wants loads of stuff, and they can't afford it. It's really, I mean, the whole premise, by the way, is incredibly sexist. I was going to say, just, that sounds yeah. like some nice casual misogyny. It, it, it's unbelievably misogynistic, the whole thing. Um and then she proceeds to get this golden arm. And I'm not going to say any more. That's, that's just the first episode. Then there's two more episodes of Six Minutes. It is extraordinary. It's, it's played straight, by the way. It's not played for laughs. It's played deadly, deadly serious and horrific. And in fact, the scene of the tree falling on her is, is genuinely horrendous and awful and horrible and traumatic, the way it's done. Um, very skillfully done. Again, I agree with you, with you, with both of you. That the, the fascination of it is the aspect ratio thing. How did they make it? Like, I want to see the making of this show. I want to see how Sam Raimi, who directed it, you know, made sure that it works in the vertical, mm. the extreme vertical version of the aspect ratio and the widescreen version, and that they both somehow work. It's extra. How do you do the chopping down of a tree to fall on an arm? And, you know, in both of those ways, it's fascinating. But the show itself is just absolutely insane. And there's a bit when she gets the golden arm where this little girl bumps into her and goes, are you a princess? And she goes, no, I've just got a golden arm. And <laughs> it, it is... <laughs> <laughs> it is one of the most bizarre, demented things I've ever seen. And I'm not exaggerating. But it's kind of well done within the confines. You know, it's Sam Raimi. He knows what he's doing. So it's kind of really well directed. The production values are high. Rachel Brosnahan is taking it very seriously. And I just, but I really want to see the making of this thing. How did they all decide to take it so seriously? How did they decide this was this idea was in any way valid and that it wasn't completely fucking nuts and should never have been made? Isn't the problem that it's not sustainable, right? So I'm sure mm. we'll come to it in news. And there's been mm. another show in our this week with I'll just say it now fuck it so <laughs> for the, the mucker which, yeah. which is Ryan Reynolds and Samuel L. Jackson animated series and every you know I think it was actually in the Empire article and it said oh, oh you know creepy has been quite disappointing in terms of uh, sign up so they're throwing they're really throwing star power at it and these big names but that's what they've been doing since the beginning and isn't the problem that you know you have to get the world's greatest directors the world's greatest actors um, because the form of it and your very basic proposition people aren't on board with, and this is a mass generalisation, which is I think a lot of people who love proper cinematic telly find it difficult to imagine watching on a phone. And obviously you've got the short kind of episode length and they are fundamental to the heart of Queeby and what it is. So how many years can you just keep like spending yeah. millions and millions on the world's most phenomenal directors and the buzziest actors to kind of paper over the fact that the the very thing you're offering is really hard for people to accept and and how sustainable does that make it you completely know? and also by the way i think that also stretches to the premises so to speak of the shows that's why you're correct the one you the the the, the blow up doll idea and this one the golden arm idea they're so bizarre and, and extreme and i think again they have they feel they have to be the scripted stuff particularly has to be this bizarre and extreme to be that eye catching that people People will want to watch it and put up with mm. the fact that it is weird and irritating to have to watch it on your fucking phone in the first place. Uh, by the way, what I wanted to say about the whole, because when we talked about it, the whole reason we're doing this, this uh, reviewing these these different episodes is because people pointed out to us on social media that it was available in this country, but it still was never officially launched, right? So what I think what happened yeah. was Queeby was launched with a big fanfare in America 
Um, huge big launch, you know, re- critics sent out things to review, given free passes for it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It was a disaster pretty much, you know, from the off, more or less. It then it immediately plummeted down the, the aperture, as we said. And I think the Queeby people just thought uh, they were going to have major proper launches in, in Europe and the rest of the world. I think they just thought, fuck it, we'll just make it available. Well, you mm. know, so there is no content made for outside of America, by the way. So Nish Kumar's done a show for it, but that's for the American market. It's Nish yeah. Kumar using his satirical comedy about America. Um, so there's no original content from this country yet. And I don't know if they're ever going to launch it properly in this country, but and yet you can pay for it in English pounds mm. and watch it as we've done quite easily, as we've all said, but it's still never officially been properly launched. The question's got to be how much longer it will just last, isn't it? Because at some point, yeah. they're just going to run out of money because no one's really subscribing to it. But they are very rich people that backed it, and they are still announcing new, as you say, new new, new projects. It is weird. It's, it's bizarre. I think they're hoping that once the pandemic goes away, if mm. the pandemic goes if, away, yeah. that, that was magically everyone will suddenly go, oh, yeah, this is what I want to watch went on the commute because no one's commuting are they that's a fucking yeah. problem yeah. for them it is a, i mean of all the things it is yeah. the most disastrous thing that could exactly. happen to them. <laughs> exactly so i would possibly just about maybe watch something on a commute like maybe a more factual thing like there's some interesting quite interesting factual shows on it there's mm-hmm. like a cookery show that someone recommended to us on twitter but i don't think i'm ever going to want to watch one of these high production value scripted Quite good shows on the on the fucking phone. What happened to the one that Terry was going to watch under a duvet? Like, did that did that ever come that off in the end? Film. That was yeah. a Spielberg horror film, wasn't That's it? Right. Yeah, oh, you yeah. can only watch at night. You can only watch at night, and I was convinced it was. <laughs> it was like, how will they know? Will they check the light? <laughs> and you're like, oh. uh. <laughs> the location settings in your phone. The, the time, the clock. <laughs> oh, well, that was Queeby then. So, you know, yeah. it, it, it is available now on whatever app store services your particular device. And, uh, you know, if anyone does find a way to broadcast it to their telly, let us know. <laughs> um, let us move on now to what we've been watching that isn't on Queeby. So what have you been watching in your actual tellies this week? Well, I tuned in uh, yesterday, recording this on Friday, to Loose Women on ITV, and I watched um, uh, Terry White talking about her extraordinary book, and that was amazing. And I did I did um, mention it to you on our WhatsApp you did. group. Um, and, and, of course, you genuinely, uh, uh, <laughs> listeners, James Dyer, right, our colleague, our much-loved colleague and leader, Terry, was on Loose Women yesterday, which is a huge thing. Loose Women is an iconic show. <laughs> on ITV, and James genuinely had no fucking idea how to watch it or what it was or where to go or anything. Though, I will say that not only did you mention it on the WhatsApp group, my mum then phoned me to say, Terry's on Loose Women. I was like, this is not helpful. <laughs> oh, my God. I know it was like what it what is the daytime television you speak of? Like what is this thing the what remote control? I've heard of Days of Our Lives. Is it that? <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, um, yeah, those of us who knew what it was and watched it on ITV, it was fantastic. So that was great. That was one of the that was the TV highlight of the week. But uh, the other thing I wanted to mention is another. Last week I mentioned the Murdoch documentary series, which is still phenomenal. Episode two went out this week, and the third one is on um, next Tuesday. The other incredible documentary series that's going on at the moment on BBC Two is Once Upon a Time in Iraq. I don't know if either of you have seen any of it. Well, James definitely hasn't seen any of it. Um, It's fucking grim, I warn you now. But it is phenomenal. It's brilliant. And um, 
what it is, is it's a look at the Iraq war from the point of view, no politicians are in it. Um, so all the talking heads, all the people reminiscing about the Iraq war and explaining what actually happened, the people actually affected by it. So citizens, um, you get army generals, there's an army general, American army general, who starts out being incredibly decent to the Iraqis when they're, when after the war and they're trying to um, do the reconstruction and he's furious with what the politicians are doing because they don't know what the fuck they should, they're doing, the American politicians. And he takes it upon himself to kind of befriend locals. He meets local religious leaders. He meets the various um, representatives of different factions in Iraq in the, in the incredibly complicated factional world that it is. But then as time goes on, and as there's a kind of insurrection in Iraq and as the locals rebel against the American authorities and it gets really scary and dangerous, he kind of goes loopy and he kind of does almost does a general Kurtz from Apocalypse Now. And it's fascinating to watch him kind of explaining himself and other people who met him and knew him and knew his story talking about what happened to him. And then there's a there's a translator, there's a young translator who was a teenager at the time when the Iraq war, um, you know, a, 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 a local who helped all the TV journalists with their, with their translation. He's incredibly charismatic and funny and engaging there are there's a woman in the episode in episode two who's um who was affected by shrapnel um which flew into her face and her story is unbelievably moving and bleak and desperate it just but what overall it just shows you the the incredible stark reality of war and of this war in particular on the people affected by it and it, it is unrelentingly brilliant and fascinating and and it's one of the most powerful things i've seen in a long time Carrie, what have you been watching? So actually, on Boyd's recommendation, um, I watched the Murdoch Dynasty um, documentary on iPlayer, which, as he said, the second episode aired. And I always, you know, wondered if I'm really interested in the inner workings of media and politics and the intersection of the two and thought, you know, is this just going to be something that appeals to people like us? Um, but it is so brilliantly done. The first episode, as, as Boyd outlined last week, looks at, you know, the family set up, the closeness in politics, particularly around the time of New Labour, their kind of Murdoch's role in Tony Blair coming into power. And it kind of set up the premise of all the complicated dynamics um, of modern politics and Murdoch and also within his family. Episode two, which is called The Rebel Alliance, James, just for you, yes. um, <laughs> which is basically Levinson phone hacking, news the world closing, um, kind of the dy dynamic when the family within the siblings, when this is happening. This documentary is so brilliantly done. And it's weird because you think you know about all of these moments because they all happen so publicly but it gives such amazing texture and context. Um, I just think it's it's actually one of the best documentaries like this I've seen in years. It's absolutely exquisitely done. If you haven't seen it, the first two episodes are on iPlayer and the third one will be dropping. Is it three episodes? Yeah. 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 Watch it, watch it, watch it. Even if you think you've got no interest in media or anything like that, it is just brilliant. Um, so that is what I've been watching this week. Well, I was uh, inspired by, we talked about this, uh, we kind of mentioned it in Dispatches, we didn't review it, that season three of Absentia kind of dropped on Amazon. And that's been on my watch list for a while. So I thought, well, since season three stopped, I'll go back and watch that. So I watched the whole of season one of Absentia, and I'm now halfway through season two. And I've been basically binging it all week. So this is um, Stana Katic, I think that's how you pronounce her name, but she was famous. She was in Castle with Nathan Fillion. And... Uh, 
she plays uh, an FBI agent called Emily Byrne, who is quote unquote murdered by a serial killer at the beginning. And obviously life moves on. And then six years later, it turns out she wasn't murdered at all. She's just been essentially kidnapped and imprisoned and drowned in a tank repeatedly. And so she's rescued. And her husband, who is also an FBI agent, he has remarried. And the son, who was like three, is now six years older and barely remembers her. And so she comes back to this life she left after having been abducted for six years and being horribly traumatized. And then, of course, there's lots of things happen. She gets framed for all sorts of things. She goes on the run. She becomes a fugitive. It is one of the most ridiculous things you will ever watch. And it's very trashy but it's really good like it's incredibly compelling and i will say i don't recall a show watching a show that has gripped me as much as this in quite a long time in that i can't stop watching it like you watch one and before you know you've watched four and it's two o'clock in the morning you're like i just want to watch one more just one more one more then i go to bed just oh okay just one more one oh it's the finale i've got to watch the finale and then it's like morning like so i really have been watching this ridiculous amount um the season two is less focused because i think season one had a very clever set up clever premise and season two it's a different story but it's still good so i'm i'm uh i'm pressing on with this as well so uh yeah that's uh that is absentia which is uh available on amazon prime if you have that i do recommend it right shall we now address a listener question and this week's listener question comes from ryan and Ryan says, has there ever been a word or catchphrase from a television show that became part of your daily vernacular? Terry. <laughs> I don't know why I didn't see that coming and I feel I kind of should. I mean, look, daily, daily vernacular might be a push. I don't, you know. I don't know. Um, but... But, you know, several times a week vernacular. Um, I definitely say that. I don't, I find myself saying a lot of friends quotes. So I have a, a, my best friend, uh, whenever we're emotional, we just send each other, Mrs. Geller, why are you cry? <laughs> from when Rachel comes back from Emily and Ross's honeymoon in Greece. Um, uh, there's actually a lot of ones from friends. I think we all do that. Like I yeah. do loads of friends like- ones. Yep. No, it's a bit, see, the funny, the is it though thing is, for me, that's always Thor from Thor Ragnarok. Is it though? Uh, is but it that's though? where I get that one from. But yes, you're right. There is a version of that. In yeah. fact, there are so many, like the Chandlerisms. I think loads of people jo- drop Chandlerisms. Could I be wearing any more clothes? Exactly. And it doesn't even make sense in any context, but it's just you say it and you understand what it means. And that's a Joeyism. <laughs> yeah. Oh yes, uh, friends is great. That was, but that was a Joey doing Joey a doing Chandler. It was a Joeyism yeah. doing a Chandlerism. Yes, uh, yeah. I, the, the friends, I think, has 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 probably, I would say, lent more to popular culture than the majority of other TV shows. It's it's just extraordinary how much, mm-hmm. and it's amazing how like kids now are just discovering it. And like I yeah. saw a kid recently, like must have been what five or six, wearing a T-shirt which had like Monica and Chandler and Joey and Phoebe and Reggie had all of the characters. I was like, you can't possibly know what that is. Why are you wearing it? Oh my God, that's weird. It's never ending. It is never ending. So is there anything else? Anything else? You don't find yourself quoting SVU to people? No, I mean, (laughs) no. (laughs) But I do do chung chung a lot, which is more of a sound effect. Yes. Um, But you say chung chung to anybody and they know exactly what it is. All right, all right. Boy, you you don't strike me as someone who regularly drops, (laughs) drops the quotes into your everyday speech. You're more original than that. 
Oh, thanks. Um, but as per last week when we were doing which fictional character would you be, and, and I was um, Larry David from Kirby Enthusiasm. Most of mine are from Kirby Enthusiasm or Seinfeld. So Seinfeld, yada, 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 became an actual, that, that did become a proper pop cultural phenomenon where people started saying yada, 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 and still now. And now people say yada, yada, yada to mean, you know, to fill in. Um, they're like, I mean, in the show, famously, they do yada, yada, yada on a date. And and um, Elaine says, um, I took him back to mine. We had coffee and yada, yada, yada. We woke up the next morning. Um, and But now people say it. You, I hear people saying yada, yada, and they have no idea where the fuck it came from. I, it's, same it's here. Become, I, I've said yeah. that, and I didn't know it was yeah. from Seinfeld. Uh, Absolutely originates from from Seinfeld, um, and the episode I think is even called the Yada Yada. Um, but then, so Seinfeld itself had loads of kind of iconic phrases and sayings that have become used quite a lot. And then, of course, like you know, Master of My Domain, all of that <laughs> from the from that episode, um, King of the County, etc. But then in Curb, the one in Curb that was really punched through, I think, to to general for me anyway, is pretty, 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 pretty. good, which he used. Pretty, pretty. <laughs> <laughs> so I do find myself saying that a lot uh, um, to an almost obnoxious degree. Um, and then he also kind of, there's, there's the brilliant, there's my, one of my favourite scenes of all time in Curb is when he goes into a, a, like a Starbucks basically and gets infuriated and points out the insanity of coffee in Starbucks. And, you know, he asks for a vanilla, some vanilla bullshit thing from the barista. And then the barista gets annoyed with him for not specifying. And then he basically says, ah, oh, milk and coffee, coffee and milk together. Who'd have thought? And he, then he just does this whole bit about how ludicrous coffee is in all its very form in a Starbucks which is hilarious and um, I really love in what I do find myself in tweets often trying to ape the device that David Brent used in the classic episode of The Office where he says he talks about his heroes in life and he goes Milligan Cleese Everett Sessions, which is one of the great <laughs> quotes of all time and I often find myself aping that device in a tweet so I'll you know I don't know talking about leaders of the world or whatever or, or things just listing them in that way with the final sessions um, I think is very influential. They're mine, yeah. Uh, oh, God. I mean, I use quite a few West Wing ones, like What's Next, which is a, a famous West Wing sort of like mover honor type thing that Bartlett does. I've, I've used a number of times. Also, the slightly more obnoxious ones. I remember coming to the office once and declaring that I drank from the keg of glory, bring me the finest muffins and bagels in all the land. I've never cursed God out in Latin, though I that's probably on my bucket list somewhere. But like when I was growing up, it was very much like Red Dwarf. I used to like occasionally lapse into sort of some pseudo scouse accent while trying to quote oh, Dave God. Lister as a teenager, which wow. is Go on. Go absolutely on. not. Absolutely Go not. On. That's not going to happen. Um, Black Adderisms, I think, were a, uh, were, were mm. a solid part of my teenage years as well. Like, I used to do a lot of those. I mean, Terry, yeah. I can barely count the times I come into the office and said, Terry, does it all have to end this way? Our valued friendship ending with me cutting you into strips and telling the prince that you walked over a very sharp cattle grid in an extremely heavy hat. <laughs> I just call that Monday. <laughs> yeah. I thought you were going to say cunning plan. Yeah, that cunning too. plan has that become a prop, that's a proper phrase. Is it so cunning? Become. It's just been appointed professor yeah. of cunning at Oxford University. Yes, uh, <laughs> a lot of that, a lot of that. Um, and why uh, are you all of yours so like smug or cunty or mansplaining? <laughs> but I, I wonder. But this is shock horror. This is a chicken and egg thing. Like what came first, the smug mm. twat or the stuff that featured smug twats? Did they make me a smug twat or was I a smug no. twat and therefore I was attracted to it? You, you were a smug twat. Like let's not. Let's not blame 
television for you being a smug twat. Like I a, don't know. We could play Marin Sorkin, I think. I quite like you that. You think that? Yeah, it's, yeah. it's Sorkin's yeah. fault. Sorkin and, and yeah. Ben Elton uh, have done yeah. this to me. Yeah, like Faulty Towers was another one. I used to quite a lot of Faulty Towers as a kid. Not so much now on account of it being wildly problematic, but, uh, you know, certainly, <laughs> certainly I enjoyed that as a kid. Only one episode is wildly problematic. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, yes, you're right. It is mainly that. Although I would argue there yeah. are other parts in there which okay. are a little bit tricky, but that particular one is the worst offender. But yeah, I, but it is films, like, and, and anyone who comes into the Empire office will know this, that like we quote things endlessly. Like oh, We God. communicate almost exclusively <laughs> in diehard quotes on some days. Like, it's just, it oh. is almost parody. Um, so yes, I would say so many catchphrases from TV, from film and stuff do sort of seep into our sort of collective consciousness. Weirdly, sometimes I find it strange where uh, when you've worked, because I mean, I've been at Empire a very long time, and uh, when you've worked with people for so long and you have this sort of shorthand based on this sort of shared love of a, of a thing, um, and you use it so much to communicate with each other, then you speak to other people, like my friends from outside of work, and I'll say something and they'll just look at me entirely blankly and I'll realise that I've either quoted something or referenced something that they just have no idea what I'm talking about. And I feel like they just don't really hear me. I mean, I'm not saying that some men use quotes from films to speak to each other because they're not always capable of having a true and genuine conversation. But I would say that that applies to, I would say that that applies to certain moments in the Empire office, having sat there and endured it for five long years. I'll tell you what though, I always think it's harder these days for it to cut through because there are so many shows and it isn't like when we were a little bit younger where something was cult and everybody was watching mm. at the same time and talking about it. But I think Fleabag did that actually in real time and it was one of the few ones recently, you know, like all the women I knew were all like sending each other gifts or saying to each other, hair is everything, Anthony. Mm. And just stuff like that became instantly <laughs> iconic. Um, and that's and really what we're talking about. And and to your point about Aaron Sorkin, you're talking about writers who understand what will stay with people and what will mm. kind of come to symbolise something in popular culture itself outside of the show. But it, you're quite right that it has almost transitioned where people used to quote things to each other, and whereas now people use gifts to do much the same thing. So yeah. the, the gift communication is off the chain. I mean, I'm massively guilty of this. I love a good gif. Like, why use actual <laughs> words when you can communicate in a gif? That's how I stand. Yeah. <laughs> I'd do this whole Notice. podcast in gifts if I was able to do it. Use your words, James. Words uh, are there. Language probably, is great. What you should do, like when you meet a new person, you should ask to see their 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 sort of giffy homepage, which shows their most used gifts and that'll probably tell you a lot about that person oh I'd love mm. to see yours <laughs> yeah yours would be fascinating <laughs> can you imagine regarding is it though which yeah. I think which, which has become so pervasive <laughs> it's like I feel like sometimes the Empire podcast which you're also on every week is sometimes literally just you and Chris Hewitt going is it though to each other for about two hours <laughs> there was a point actually this is absolutely true where Chris said look I think we should impose a ban on is it though on the podcast mm. I think it's driving people nuts and I was like but absolutely you not <laughs> yeah I mean <laughs> What can I say for 90 minutes? <laughs> yeah, exactly. We did retire, where's the handle? The kind of quote of Atri from uh, yeah. Infinity War, because that, I think, started to stretch beyond parody. But uh, yeah, it is It is. It is one of the many reasons that Chris and I are completely insufferable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Oh, good times. Well, Ryan, we hope... I feel we've digressed yes. slightly to why yeah. you and Chris, you are irritating. <laughs> well, we've just come full circle well, to smug enough. twats, haven't we? So actually, it's all, it's all perfect. Um, Ryan, yes, that was your question. I hope that helped. Uh, if you'd like your question answered, 
feel free to chuck it to me on social media, on Instagram or Twitter at James C. Dyer, and I will attempt to deal with it there. Right, let us move on now to this week's news. And I'm going to kick off with an exclusive that I discovered on the internet. So this uh, this exclusive <laughs> story comes via Deadline.com. And it mentions that <laughs> producer Bad Wolf options... Uh, uh, is, is, uh, t- it's a Terry... Ter- 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 oh, Terry White. Yes, Terry White of Empire Magazine. His memoir, memoir, not an autobiography, a memoir, has, the, has been picked up by Bad Wolf, who did his dark materials, who did... Um, Discovery of Witches, come on. I mean, you'll never top that, let's be honest. That's always going to be the centrepiece of Death Slayer, and you just need to be comfortable with that. Didn't they have something to do with Doctor Who as well? No, Bad no. Wolf was a was a phrase in Doctor Who that I believe... And a place, yeah. Bad Wolf Bay. And a place, yeah. And it be, it's simple. Yeah, that's a whole... Don't okay. get me on Bad <laughs> Wolf Let's not get onto Bad Wolf and Doctor Who. <laughs> right, okay, well, anyway. So, so, and it, they have bought the rights to your memoir, which is now I think it's going to happen. And obviously we know this because we saw the exclusive on Deadline. <laughs> com, a website that you'll be surprised here is not the Empire website. So that was that was interesting. It's good. They they you know they must have connections. They must have an in somehow perhaps with the writer. You know which got them this this scoop. Well, look, you know, here's the thing. So, uh, this has been in in the works for some time. Uh, lovely, really exciting thing. But they said, oh, we're going to send out a press release, and I was like, who the fuck's going to care? Like about who's really going to give a shit? And I thought, oh, it's really nice of him to send a press release out. Nobody's going to pick it up because who am I? And so, and then it ended up being picked up by Deadline and Variety, and they ran stories. And then Ben Travis just kind of sent me loads of question marks, going like, what the fuck is happening? Um, Judas. It never, never occurred to me because you know. They've, they've optioned the book. It's really exciting, but we, but we haven't started talking about casting or anything yet. Well, we can, kind of have secretly, but not, you know, properly. So it's not like there's a, a famous actor attached or a great showrunner. Um, so um, you were as surprised as I was, to be honest. But um, yeah. Let's talk casting for a moment. So Mariska okay. Harkate, have you spoken to her? Have you sent the feelers <laughs> out? <laughs> well... Here's the thing, James. This this um this book is set in my childhood and in my early thirties. She's very and, versatile. And Mariska, I mean Mariska, to be honest, is is looking good on fifty, whatever she is. But but you know that it might not quite work out. But I, I maybe I could create a role for Mariska, like she could be like the psychiatrist or you know. One of the people in the psychiatric world. You will be perhaps unsurprised to hear that the topic of casting this particular property did come up on the Empire podcast. And I took some notes so that we could share with you what people oh, thought Christ. as the young Terry White. I will not be crediting any of these suggestions for the benefit of safeguarding people's jobs. So first of all, first of all, one of our numbers suggested Vicky McClure. As Terry White, which I actually thought was not Midlander, oh, yeah, another right. Midlander. She is. Yeah, so I thought she'd, she'd be a good choice. Um, someone else suggested Billy Piper. I'm not entirely sure why, but they did. So I could see that happening. Gemma Arterton and Ruth Wilson were also mooted as possible Terrys. Uh, my suggestion of Lauren Socha fell on deaf ears, but uh, <laughs> uh, I still maintain that nothing, <laughs> nothing can be, I think, young Terry, absolutely Lauren Socha. Comedy, comedy, oh. Lauren Socha, as you. What me at like seven? I mean, no, all Lauren ages. All, as I say, she's a, she's an actress without peer. I think you, from seven to your current age, all the way through, <laughs> her, which is a variety of different perms. I think that's the way to go. 
Oh my god! I mean, you could feasibly play me just with just the only thing that changes is the hair. <laughs> so it's perm, and then it's weird. Weird. There's a family living in it. Beehive. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, I don't disagree with Lauren Socher. I have to say, she's incredible. I think Arterton was suggested because she can definitely pull off a beehive and has done in the past. So perhaps that's why. I I, I appreciate that these are the important things. They are. So um, Gemma Arterton for her hair. Yes. Um, <laughs> Lauren Socher presumably for she could pull off a perm. I, I, I'm, I think they're all fine suggestions. Boyd, who would you cast? Well, I, I don't know if you, I, I'm still watching um, National Treasure, which has been repeated on Channel 4 them, and Andrea Riseborough is fucking brilliant in that. She is my number one choice because I think she's, she excels at playing. Um, uh, and, and let's face it, in this particular story, it's a troubled, it's about a troubled young woman and she's fucking brilliant at that. So yeah, Andrea Riseborough is my pick. Okay, okay. Troubled young woman. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> Well, if you want any more information on this, you'll find the exclusive story on Deadline.com, so you can read all about it there. Uh, any other news that we haven't been scooped on? Um, I talked about uh, Father Mucker, obviously, uh, earlier in the podcast. So this is the Ryan Reynolds and Samuel L. Jackson animated series. Mm. Obviously, they've um, been on screen together before in Hitman's Bodyguard. I think they've either made or are making the sequel to that. Um, and it's from the writers of Blockers, which actually got me excited because I still maintain that Blockers is a massively underrated film, which made me laugh more than pretty much any other film the year it came out. And it's um, the writers of that who are writing this and are going to be showrunners. Um, I think this could be amazing because I actually think the chemistry between Ryan Reynolds, I understand it's animated, but <laughs> the, the chemistry between Ryan Reynolds and Samuel L. Jackson, I think is lovely. And I think they are fucking fantastic together. I didn't think The Hitman's Bodyguard was the best film I'd ever seen by any stretch, but they have a brilliant dynamic. And with those kind of writers attached and just being called for the mucker, which made me laugh hysterically this morning at 5am, um, is enough for me. But again, you know, it's, it's on Queeby, all of the things we've talked about with Queeby. Animation on there would be a, an, another entirely different thing, I'm sure. Um, so no kind of date on that, that's just been announced as kind of being greenlit. I've got more more news about Bad Wolf, the production company behind um, uh, Terry White's, the adaptation of Terry White's book, which is that um, his Dark Materials Series 2 has been confirmed mm. for the autumn on BBC One. And I find it quite surprising because it seems like barely a year since Series 1 went out. And I don't know whether they filmed it simultaneously or, but, you know, to have such a huge, big, epic production ready for the second series so quickly, not affected at all by the pandemic or anything, etc. And the very exciting news has also revealed that the voice of the demon of Andrew Scott's character, Colonel John hmm. Parry, will be played by Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Yeah, I saw so that. that. Incredible. Is, Incredible. Is a fantastic, also, brilliant Season thing. 2 is going to be minus one episode as well. They've had to cut yeah. one episode, which was an original one, which focused on James McAvoy's character, who I don't think was going to really be in it otherwise. Uh, and they, but they just weren't because of the pandemic; they weren't able to film it. So, oh, so it has been affected by the pandemic. <laughs> yeah, oh uh, yeah. And Terry <laughs> right. Stamp, right? He's been announced yes. as, as joining yeah. the cast, and we probably should say that this was part of Comic Con at home. Uh, and there's quite a bit of news out of that, obviously. Comic-Con would normally be happening in San Diego. Um, it isn't for all the obvious reasons. And so it's been done virtually, including a panel hosted by Chris Hewitt. 
that I was reading about, which was Truth Seekers. This is the supernatural horror comedy series with Simon Pegg and Nick Frost, which they co-wrote with Nat Saunders, James Serafinowicz, um, directed by Jim Field Smith. And it's the team of paranormal investigators who are filming kind of ghost sightings across the UK and putting them on an online channel um, for the world to see. Um, and this is going to be an Amazon Prime video show, I believe. Yeah, and I thought the trailer really good, actually. Yeah, it looked I funny. That, yeah, really funny, really well done. Uh, what else has come out? Neil Gaiman spoke about Sandman briefly, um, which is very exciting. I don't know if anyone noticed, so if, you, if you're upset that Sandman, which is supposed to start shooting in May, um, has sort of been delayed, um, the audiobooks, Audible have released uh, massively star-studded audiobooks of the, the first three books of Sandman, which has got like Kat Dennings in there and uh, James McAvoy and all sorts of people. Uh, that's well worth checking out. But Gaiman was talking about the actual show and that it is going to be set in 2021 when it, uh, when it actually comes out. So... Uh, Morpheus will have been kept prisoner in a jar for 105 years instead of the 70 of the original graphic novel. So I can tell that Terry's fascinated by that particular turn of events. But- <laughs> I was like, when you said that, like, you was like, so like, oh, an extra <laughs> 70 years, not just a bloody years. I was like, so excited. Oh. I love Sam, man. It's great. This is good news. Yeah. All right, fine. Yeah. Um, Perry Mason's yeah. been renewed for a second season. There you go. That's exciting. Yeah, the boys has been renewed for third yes. season. Looking forward to season two. Of that. Um, Lando, have you uh, heard of the Lando? It's only a rumor at this stage. Yeah, there is a that's rumor. only a rumor. Though, there's, isn't a rumor. It? Yeah. there's a rumor. There's uh, a rumor that uh, uh, that Donald Glover might return to play Lando in a Disney Plus TV series. So whether or not we ever see that, remains I mean, to be it makes seen. total sense. It does it? make sense. It does make sense because they literally dropped him in to that film, and it was clear like, oh, now we can do something with this character. Yeah, it's funny because um, there's certainly a contingent that's very much like Solo is best best forgotten, but he was a lot of fun in it. I mean, he was arguably the best thing yeah. in the film. So. Yeah. Um, the BAFTAs take place, the TV BAFTAs take place on Friday, this Friday, um, as we're going out now on uh, Monday. So Friday 31st on BBC One at seven o'clock. And it's been announced that Idris Elba is getting a special award, um, the kind of prestigious person who deserves an award, um, almost like the equivalent of a lifetime achievement thing. Um, and it's recognising not only his career uh, on, on TV, but also his commitment to championing diversity and new talent. And I think that would be a, a kind of lovely moment for him. Mm. That's brilliant. Um, yeah. Any other news? Is that the end of news? I'm quite excited about the show Roadkill. BBC put out a picture of Hugh Laurie from Roadkill. You heard about this? A political thriller um, written by David Hare, who's obviously a legendary playwright. Just the cast. Um, and it, he plays a politician whose public and private life is falling apart. And there's a conspiracy. I love conspiracy, political thriller type things. Um, Helen McCroy's in it. Sid Sabic Knudsen's in it. From Westworld, Sarah Green from Dublin Murders is in it. And Normal People. It's just got a brilliant cast and a great writer. So I'm excited about that. We should be arriving in the autumn as well. Right. Well, if that is all the current affairs we have for you today, Terry, any other massive exclusives you ceded to other outlets that maybe you could share with us now? No? Okay. You can have you can have first dibs on the casting, James. Thank I was you. About that. Thank you. <laughs> uh, right. Let's move on to this week's reviews. And first up, we have season two of Netflix's The Umbrella Academy, which reunites us with numbers one through seven, picking up after season one's dramatic finale, which saw them all flung into the void as number five tried to save them from the apocalypse. Terry, was this a number one or a number two? <laughs> Oh my God. Wow. It writes itself, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so, this has been a long time 
in the making when it comes to season two. And, you know, we loved this, if I remember well, rightly. As I, I recall, to... I liked it. Boy didn't like it. And you were wildly met about it. Was that? I thought I, liked... I was trying to remember how I felt before. <laughs> I do know that I didn't carry on watching it. Yeah. That is what I know. Um, and But it was a massive hit, right? So I think it was um, Netflix's third biggest TV show that year. Um, they put out a figure of it had been watched by 45 million households. Um and as we know, this was the, based on the comic book series by Gerard Way and Gabriel Barr. Um, and I do remember there was loads of buzz about it, but it's been so long, like, what, two years, I want to say, um, since... It's the- actually, by the way, it's actually only been yeah. a year, <laughs> like, eight, less than 18 yeah. months because it went Is out it? February. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, sorry. To, like, you expect I know. it to come back, like... It's been slightly over a year. Slightly over a year, sorry. So it's been slightly over a year, not that long, some may say, <laughs> since... Um, <laughs> Um, and I'll tell you what this first and I do remember us discussing this when it came to the first season which is this is such incredibly well done television let's just say that from the get go so where this picks up um, on season two episode one if you haven't watched the end of season one and you um, you want to keep watching it before you watch this then I would suggest skipping past this part of the review because obviously it's going to cover off where we pick up Um and it immediately opens in the 1960s and each of them have been dropped in slightly different parts of Dallas in slightly different years in the 1960s. It's just before the Kennedy assassination. And there's a new apocalypse because the, presumably there's always going to be a new apocalypse. Um, and at the point we kind of joined them, there's 10 days um, for him to find everybody, bring them back together and save the world in a nutshell. And you do forget, I forgot how ex- exquisitely this is done, whether it's the effects, um, the soundtrack is incredible. Like it is such brilliantly, brilliantly done telly. I mean, the the cast is just incredible, right? So Ellen Page for me is still one of the standouts of this. She is brilliant in this. Um, and what's really interesting is they are kind of in these different years in Dallas, just before this big kind of significant moment in history. But interestingly, some of the group have been there for longer than others and some have been stuck for years. And so they've developed these incredible new lives. So Alison's involved in the civil rights movement. Diego's in a psychiatric ward, which is incredible. And there's this amazing scene where they're discussing his hero complex, (laughs) which is just like brilliantly done. Um, But there are, and because of this setting where they have developed these kind of independent lives, um, there's some brilliant additions to the cast this time around. Um, so you've got Ritu Aria, who we know from Humans, obviously. Um, she is brilliant in this. She is there in the psychiatric ward. And I have to say, like, she is spectacular, a wonderful addition. Yusuf Gatewood, um, who's Alison's husband, and um, Marion Island, who essentially plays this kind of surrogate mother figure to Ellen Page's character. I only watched the first episode of season two, but it made me regret not continuing Mm -hmm. with season one. And as I say, it's just in the hour, the amount of ground they covered, the, the, the brilliant way they do characterization, these little vignettes, they move between the characters and you fall back in love with these characters and, and this kind of alternate normal life they could have had. Um, and yet there's still loads of action. As I say, this impending apocalypse, uh, battle scenes. 
I really loved this first episode um, and I'm definitely going to continue watching, but just the skill and the craft in this show, Mm. um, it is really, really excellently done. It's more accessible in some ways. So season one takes a little while to build up momentum because it starts with that funeral episode, their father's died, that brings them Mm. all together and it sets up the idea of the apocalypse and that plays out over those 10 episodes. But it takes a little while to get onto its feet. It's also a funny one because it's it's very stylistic. It's got a really interesting Mm. tone to it. It's not like one of these sort of Nolanized superhero shows and it's not even like The Boys which just feels very tongue-in-cheek and self-referential. It takes place in a very heightened reality but it also comes very close to failing the Bellend test for me. So I, I, I like this despite the fact that all the characters are kind of Bellends, but they're mild Bellends. Like it's a, it's a sort of a, a sort of a genteel Bellendery kind of uh, permeates this sort of whole show where they're all quite irritating in their own way but there's something lovable about them as well so number five in particular is smug as fuck and deeply annoying <laughs> you know and uh, it reminds me of you i knew you'd say that he really reminds me <laughs> of, of you i have the awareness yeah. to realize that and yet and yet you kind of go with him because he's quite funny regardless so i quite like him as well and, and i like what they did they did they used to hop they timeline hop a lot in season one we used to see them all as kids and then you saw them as adults so it showed their formative years don't know if they've left that behind but i feel like there's a lot more on the table this time with the new setting the fact that that they're all separated because they end the end of the first season fleeing the apocalypse and then end up in the 1960s but uh yeah i'm fascinated to see where this goes and where there's a there's a a sort of triad of albino hitmen in this you're not quite sure who they are or where they're from but there's this uh temporal police squad in season one which is mary j blige is sort of a hitman for them the two the two hitmen uh cha-cha and hazel uh so you've got to wonder if they're going to be involved in this as well um lots happening i've never read the graphic novel so i genuinely don't know where this is going but yeah i i as i say i watched season one over the last couple of weeks and and really really enjoyed it so definitely want to want to press on with this boyd you are you were the most naysaying about season one as i recall mm. is that persisting yeah i mean there is a lot happening in the opening scene there's like fucking russians invading texas yep. there's like all the characters drop from the sky and have their own <laughs> fights encounter spectacular so- like action sequence which ends in a fucking nuclear explosion yeah. it's like the beginning of age of ultron <laughs> yeah I was, after that i was like yeah but you know come on give us some incident give us some action you know it is it's a relentlessly what my issue with it is and i still have the same problems to some extent i had with series one is is that I, it's got that tone that reminds me a little bit of a Zack Snyder film, <laughs> you know, particularly Watchmen. His version of Watchmen, if you remember, has loads of these sequences like slow motion with the brilliant songs and, you know, and that thing has become a bit of a cliche where you have a big slow motion action montage with a slightly weirdly inappropriate song going on, I don't know, by Frank Sinatra or someone. <laughs> and it's, I find that whole tone slightly arch and knowing and... That's my issue with it. Uh, but having said that, it's incredibly watchable, you know, because the cast is brilliant. I agree with all of that. You know, I find actually my biggest, my least favorite character is Robert Sheehan's character. He is an even bigger bell. He's Bellin, the biggest right? of the bell. So yes, he's king bell. He's the biggest of the bellets, yeah. Um, and I find him just a bit much to deal with. And I find the whole thing a bit much, uh, you know, at various moments in, in it. And I, and I still think that. I watched two episodes and I, I'm like just calm down a bit like not everything has to be you know and almost, it's almost like we can do anything we want in this in this show now you know we've got a fucking massive budget from Netflix we could do whatever effects we want we're going to have the nuclear explosion in the first 10 seconds but 
I just wish it would just calm down a bit and give me a bit more of, you know, I want to see a bit more of Ellen Page's character, you know, and it cuts between, it has to cut between what, seven different characters really quite. So it's all, I found it all a bit much to be honest. And when it calms down and is just, you know, and concentrates on the characters and their stories, it's good. It's really good. It has really good moments, but just, I just think it's a bit try hard for me. Um, and so that's my issue with it, just in the tone of it. But it is incredibly, stunningly, brilliantly made. Mm. You can't, you can't go wrong. And I'm interested who the I think they're Aryans, maybe these these blonde, blue eyed people that are coming uh, yeah. in. Yeah, well, I, I don't feel that's so. Yeah, I'm, I feel there's possibly yeah. yeah, there's possibly a more complex solution okay. to that one. But yeah, right, sure. But I, you know, I, I I didn't carry on watching. I think it's interesting that Terry and I neither of us carried on watching it. And I do think, I think they need to focus a bit more on making it. Compelling, making the through the story through line, the narrative more gripping and more compelling, and worry more about that than the spectacle. Because the spectacle, they've nailed it. You know, don't get me wrong, but I don't know if I am. I, like, it's not top of my list to carry on watching. Let's put it that way. At this point in time, See? but I think in in an hour long, you know, mm. program to do both spectacle, which you know, it's essentially bookended in in many respects yeah. by these two massive moments of spectacle, and then put all the character stuff. And I didn't feel underserved by the character stuff, like. You know, the, the bits you did see of Vanya and a Diego and, and those quiet moments you're talking of, I think they made the most of those to such a degree that even I, who didn't finish watching the first season, was instantly compelled. And obviously you're learning something different about them this time because you're not doing the stuff at this point anyway that they did in season one with the childhood, but you're seeing it's kind of an alternate life of, of the normality they could have experienced. Um, and and intersecting it with real life political events and all the prejudices around them and all the problems around. I don't know. I found it really, I, I was satisfied with the way they moved between spectacle and character. Um, and mm. they, everybody didn't get equal serving, but they don't have to right at that point. Oh, sure. Um, sure yeah. um, I yeah. liked those, but I liked those moment of bombast and I'm quite into that. I'm quite into the, like, let's cob everything, including the kitchen mm. sink and next door's kitchen sink and the <laughs> kitchen sink from, you know, two streets away at it, which they definitely do. I like the fact that they're not self-conscious about that. It's just kind of like a massive, big, bombastic, ridiculous, almost like, just orgy of everything mm. we can do, as you say, whether it's effects and it's the number of characters and it's there's a, the, the setup at the end is extraordinarily like frenetic and chaotic and big and bold. And I, I liked that. I liked the fact that it kind of went there and wasn't too... I know you find it arch. I find it that it's not self-conscious, that it just goes, fuck it. We're just going to go for it. Yeah. And yeah. I don't think this is a series that generally leans on spectacle. I think this episode is perhaps an outlier in this regard. Like season one is not heavy on spectacle. It is very character-based. There's an awful lot of violin playing in season one. Um, you know, it, it is, it's understanding these kids, how they were brought up, the kind of traumas that have come out from this upbringing they have. And obviously that's, you know, that's taken as you've already read all that stuff. You've already got all that stuff when mm. you come into season two. But I thought this covered quite a lot of character development. Like you see and understand a lot of where these characters are in their headspaces, how long they've been there, how it's changed them. One of them's got married. You know, they're all doing these different things because they've been here for several years. And we rejoin those characters and see how they've changed. So it's less who these characters are. It's like, who are they now? And I thought it actually did quite a good job of establishing all of that. So I'm, I, I thought it was, yeah, it was very bold. It was very well done. Yes. Yes. Umbrellas mm. all round for okay. the Umbrella Academy season two, which of course drops on Netflix on Friday, July the 3rd. 
31st. Next up, we have Prodigal Son, which aired in the US late last year and sees Michael Sheen as a serial killer known as the surgeon, whose son, played by Tom Payne, is a former FBI profiler who uses his family's traits to see crimes from the killer's point of view and consults with his dad. Uh, and this becomes especially helpful when a new killer emerges mimicking his father's MO. And for the record, this is a hundred times more stupid than it sounds. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that right, boy? Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Um, oh my fucking God. What is this show? Let me just say, first of all, talking of the kitchen sink, every single serial killer film tv series story you've ever heard of is is referenced i think and it's from science of the lambs to seven to copycat mm. to kiss the girls every single one is somehow referenced or stolen from for this series obviously as you say the main idea is like instead of hannibal, hannibal lecter and and jodie foster you've got hannibal lecter and his son and it is it's ludicrous and not only that his daughter the son's so there's Hannibal, so there's the serial killer in prison played by Michael Sheen having a great old time. He's in this prison where his cell is like a library. It's like a vast <laughs> library with a TV yeah. set for some reason. And he wears a cardigan. No idea why. His son was an FBI profiler. Then he gets ditched for being being crazy. And then he joins the NYPD because his mate- Lou Diamond Phillips. Lou Diamond yes. Phillips gets him a job there. <laughs> so that says that. Then his sister is a TV news reporter who reports on serial killers <laughs> and murders. Just so they're all like, they're all involved. Their mum, who's barely like five years older <laughs> than, than him, by the way. I mean, she doesn't have to have these kids. Is this incredibly like- She's this, this like incredibly wealthy woman who has like lives, seems to live in a castle as far as I can make out, and has the moment for dinner and chatting about serial killing. Oh, by the way, he lives in the most lavish New York loft you've ever seen. I mean, they must pay fucking well at the NYPD and the FBI because that place is worth at least fifty million dollars, I reckon. And he shackles himself. He has night terrors, so he shackles himself to his bed. And yet, still ends up like hurtling himself out of the window at various points. Um, Spoiler alert, there is a, a scene of a, of an axe amputation, um, which is quite no holds barred for, you know, for a network show. This is a Fox show in America, Sky One here, quite extraordinary. Um, it is absolutely insane. And, oh, by the way, the main guy, Tom Payne, plays the main character, mm. the profiler with that dad. And he's crazier than his dad. So Michael Sheen actually, <laughs> if anything, slightly yeah. underplaying compared to Tom Payne's character, who is in absolutely bonkers and just and when he has to do the amputation scene uh, he's like loving it this is like a great moment for him he's really excited about having to take an axe and amputate and take off someone's hand um it's so weird the tone of it is almost like light-hearted hilarity like playing for laughs seriously like this is like one of the most light-hearted frothy yeah. fun serial killer dramas i've ever seen it's got like an American psycho-y vibe to it. Like the way he's just... Yeah, I think that's trying yeah, what they're trying to get he's for. He's delighting in being this sort of like sort yeah. of junior sociopath working for the good guys, but really very much in touch with his serial killer side. Yeah, it's got a jaunty vibe, <laughs> you know, jaunty tone. And I just wasn't expecting that. So I kind of admire the fact that it's just balls to the wall crazy and tongue in cheek. There is a moment like in the first episode where we're supposed to find it a bit moving because he starts thinking about the actual ramifications to being the son of a person who murdered 23 people. At least 23 people, by the way. At least. Going. At least. <laughs> and you're supposed to find that movie. I'm like, no, 
Don't try and be moving. Don't try and move us when the rest of it is insanely frothy and fun. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how they're going to sustain it because it's a procedural. Mm. It's, so every week there's going to be a different serial killer, presumably, who he, who he consults his dad about. I mean, are there that many serial killers, apparently, in the New York, <laughs> New York State? Yeah, there has to be for this show. It is crazy. I kind of enjoyed the madness of it, but it is fucking I enjoyed terrible. Michael Sheen, the way Michael Sheen does this thing where he's talking about it. It's like, he's like, yes. And he's getting really excited. Goes, but, but of course, it's terrible. It's terrible. Like, you know, it's, it's just, yeah. he has, yeah. he's having the time of his life playing this character. It is so camp and so ridiculous. Um, yeah, I was, I was watching this. I was like, hang on a minute. And I was like, I can't tell whether this is genius or absolutely terrible, but it's definitely one or the other. It's yeah. very peculiar. I mean, it's t- it's terrible. <laughs> like it's, it's. I mean, I mean, like let's let's just be clear on that. And I agree with Boyd. Like you've got um, the Tom Payne who plays Malcolm, right? Who is fully like. <laughs> chaotic and crazy and you know just casually unshackles himself from the bed pops himself out of a window like he is meant to be the one who's kind of you know uh holding down a normalish job even though he's doing looking into the exact thing that he's haunted by because his dad's a killer it is like there are moments in the flashbacks that are so excruciating and they're so and like you say about American Psycho, it's like pulpy almost. Mm. And there's a moment where he's meant to be young and in college. And, you know, they obviously try and make him look like a teenager. He's playing a younger version of himself that they just gel back his hair and put him in a Harvard jumper, even though I think he's about 45. And you're like, what is happening? They, they, you know, they are nods to other things. It is literally like there's a whole setup of his cage with a library that is exactly like almost yeah. like the identical setup as as um, Hannibal. And yeah. all I kept thinking about right during this was was Anthony Hopkins and his his gorgeous, like sick, funny, charming, creepy. His iteration of Hannibal is one of the great characters in film history and somehow michael sheen is like too subtle in this so he's <laughs> yeah, kind of I know what you mean, yeah. like you i don't know if you're meant to find him scary or menacing or creepy or anything but you don't feel any of those things the tone is all over the chuffing shop i mean christ almighty and i kept thinking is it meant to be so bad that it's good or just so bad that it's bad or is it not meant to be either of those things and it's meant to be good but i can't tell but it's fucking lunacy and as you said the 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 kind of basic proposition just sounds quite like tedious and oh it's a procedural because it also has the setup of a procedural as well but it's just not it's just like one of the weirdest things i started watching it and i was like what is like Seriously, what is happening? <laughs> Who is this man? What yeah. is going on? What is Michael Sheen doing in a cage? Look, looking a bit like an accountant. Like, I don't understand. Um, this is mad. It's, this is mad. It's worth noting that there's a brilliant Tom Payne, of course. Sorry, there's he's... a brilliantly baldest moment as oh, well. Yes, yeah, there? Yes, like, there is. Well, yeah, there's like fucking. But so Tom, Tom Payne's character, this genius, who's the only person in the world apparently who can, uh, can identify with serial killers and work out what their motives and obsessions are. So it works out this guy has to be bald yeah. in the middle yeah. of the It's the only explanation for his evilness. He must be bald. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. Um, it's worth noting that Tom Payne is, of course, Jesus from The Walking Dead, uh, which people yes, may not yes. necessarily recognise without his beard and long hair. But, uh, yeah, it's. I mean, look, <laughs> I had loads of fun watching this. I mean, it's clearly rubbish, but I really enjoyed it. Um, I mean, I'm not going to watch it because it's a procedural and I hate procedurals, but I thought Sheen was hilariously in it. He's genuinely having fun. Um, and it's just, it's absurd. It's the kind of thing where if I were into procedurals, I think this would be right up my alley because it's wildly over the top, huge things happening. And it's, it, it's not like, you know, like uh, the ones I used to watch, my go-to procedurals back when I used to watch them, I used to watch the CSIs and I, I always liked Criminal Minds. But Crim Criminal Minds was always very dark, like there's very little levity in Criminal Minds. Whereas this deals with similar subject matters, but just has tons of fun with it. And I think I've got a lot of time for that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, Christ. but I think I think Terry's right. I think essentially it's shit. But um, yeah, I'm, I, I, I'm mainly I will tune in again. But I'm mainly fascinated to know how they're going to make a procedure out of serial killing. They can have so many serial killer cases. I'm absolutely but fascinated isn't that by that. The problem that, Luther has, where there's like eight different serial killers, like all. Yeah, a it's bit. just like there's a lot of stuff going on. But Luther still spreads its narrative out, doesn't it, over more it than does, multiple yeah, episodes? Whereas this is literally going to be a different case a week. It's going to be crazy. It's going to be absolutely crazy. And it's interesting point about the Hannibal Lecter and Anthony Hopkins I totally agree with Terry about that because you are faced actors must hit, that performance was mm. so indelible and so mm. influential and I feel sorry for actors having to play serial killers now because like, what do I do do I go mm. down that route do I so I feel like Michael Sheen's almost gone down he's playing him as a normal kind of guy, guy having a bit of fun and that's about it like so when the kid asks him there's a flashback scene he goes why do you kill all those people daddy and he kind of goes well, I don't know like you know just like I've no idea it's like that and that's as far as you can go so I think that's quite an interesting choice <laughs> Oh, well, that is Prodigal Son, which begins on Sky on Tuesday, July the 28th at 9pm. Also out this week, we have a 90-minute one-off drama, not a film, written by the great Jimmy McGovern. Uh, this tells the story of Anthony Walker, a teenager murdered in a racist attack in Merseyside back in 2005. Anthony is a story of what his life could have been if things had gone differently. Terry, what did you make of this one? Uh, so... I found this incredibly moving, incredibly difficult to watch at times. And that's because it is based on a real life murder, that of Anthony Walker, um, who was a 18 year old boy basically and was murdered in a racist attack in Merseyside in 2005. But the basic premise is really interesting because and as you say, it's Jimmy McGovern. He has had a relationship with Anthony's mother in real life for many years, and, and his mum's name is G. Now, he she was essentially a consultant for him, and he said that um, she would often be his informal advisor when he was writing grieving characters, and then one day she went to him and said, it's my turn now, and I want you to tell my son's story. And so essentially it is a mother's story and what makes this so interesting is most dramas about an event like this they focus on the moments before a great deal on the attack itself and then obviously the consequences of that and maybe a, a, a the path to justice or something and that's the normal format we're faced with this is fascinating because this 
focuses less on the literal consequences and instead of the potential life lost. And in that way, it's a fictionalized account of how Anthony Walker's life could have turned out. So it tells the story in reverse. It begins at 25 um, at this award ceremony and it works back through to the moment that he was killed. And what it imagines is the children he would have had, the lives he would have changed, the woman he'd have married, the relationship he'd have continued to have with his mum. And, you know, this format is both kind of radical in one sense, um, but also hugely simple and powerful because instead of trying to tell you, you know, what he was like as a boy, it showed you the, the, the man's life that was taken as well, the man he would have become in society, in his family. Um, I found it incredibly, incredibly moving. And it was based on interviews with Anthony's mom and sisters um, and family members to create the portrait of, of this young man and, and what his life would have gone on to be. Um, Anthony is played by Toheeb Jimo, who is kind of relatively a newcomer, but he's also going to be in The Power, um, Amazon's adaptation of the Naomi Alderman novel. He is wonderful as Anthony. So you get the sense of his mischief, his charm, all the different sides of his character. Um, you kind of see him changing into this man um, if he hadn't been so brutally murdered. He puts in an incredible performance, as does, and I have to say, Raki Aola as his mum. She is the real heart of this. And, you know, I keep saying it, but this is a mother's story of, of what she has lost by losing her son as well. I just found this incredible um, and it does, as you get towards the moment of the attack and when he was murdered, um, that is is so difficult to watch because you've just watched the life that's been robbed from him and you know what's at stake and you know what that family and society has been robbed of and it makes that moment so difficult to sit through. Um, I was in tears for the last pretty much 35 minutes of this. I just think it's incredible. I think Jimmy McGovern's just come up with this incredible way of telling this story in a completely different way than most real life murders are portrayed on screen. Um, I think the relationship with his mum is clear um, and how it's given a real intimacy to the portrait of this young man. And there are big events, you know, the child he would have gone on to have, but also these beautiful little family sketches, these moments they spend together, which shows the kind of normality an intimacy of small moments that were lost alongside these big life events. I think this is a a brilliant, brilliant piece of television, and everybody should watch it. Yeah, it's. I did find it almost unbearable to watch it at various moments because it just the whole idea of it is so. As an idea, it's incredibly moving to kind of commemorate a life that was cruelly cut short in this way. Is so. It's kind of inherently you're kind of making real this person you just know the name and you know the incident and you know how he was horrendously murdered and then to turn that into a, a, a an artwork which commemorates his life in a in such a kind of subtle way is such a brilliant way of doing it and it reminded me a bit of um the episode of cucumber russell t davis's series episode six famous one of my one, i think one of the best single episodes of tv drama um of the last 10, 15 years, which told the story of the fictional character of Lance, who's in, of his life um, 
and it kind of from beginning to end. And then he, he he's tragically killed at the end of that episode. And just the way it kind of showing incidents in someone's life, um, in this case, this real human being, it's just... Yeah, it's just over, almost overwhelming, as you say. And again, and I didn't know. So I, was, I knew that I knew I'd read about it and I knew that this brilliant idea um, of telling the incidents from his life was how it was going to be done. But I didn't know whether how it was going to deal with the actual incident, the racist murder itself. And that, as you say, oh my God, it's so chilling to the bone. Um, and, and just, and, and the aftermath, the mother talk, the scene with the mother and the nurse. Um, I think was so incredible. Yeah, it, it, it's 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 as you say, it has to be seen. But it is really, really, it's it's painful, and yet at the same time, you have to kind of have to watch it. I have not seen this, and frankly, it sounds soul-crushingly depressing. So I may not watch it, but it does sound very good. Either way, Anthony does drop on BBC One on Monday, July the twenty seventh at eight thirty p.m. Finally, on a slightly lighter note, we have the triumphant return of the Muppets. Muppets Now arrives this week on Disney Plus and brings the gang back together for a kind of improvisational comedy show. And this one, it's got RuPaul, Tay Diggs, Linda Cardellini, even Danny Trejo turns up uh, to talk to Piggy and the crew. Boyd, did you sanction this buffoonery? <laughs> well, when you said um, triumphant return, I almost went, is it Because I was really looking forward to this. I'm a huge Muppet fan. I'm very much pro Muppet. You know, I was brought up watching the Muppet show in the late 70s on ITV I loved it it was such a great format um, you know they'd have a guest host each week it was kind of like the Muppet Show the original Muppet Show was a bit like Saturday Night Live kind For of kids. format in a way it was like the making of this variety mm. entertainment show and it was fantastic and I loved some of the films I even liked the, the reboot fairly recent reboot um, and yet the, and what I was hoping because the way this has been publicised uh, by Disney Plus is that it's like an improvised sitcom mm. Right. And I was like, how's that work? How do you improvise with the puppetry, etc.? And so I was expecting it almost to be their a kind of their take on like a curb your enthusiasm extras type of thing. Um where them and, and to begin with, you think that's almost what it is. So the setup is that um they're they're creating this show. They're creating kind of elements of a kind of of a YouTube style show um, where they're influ- Miss Pig is like an influencer and she wants to kind of get free stuff on the internet, which is quite a funny idea. Um, Kermit wants to interview people, celebrities, so he interviews RuPaul in it and gets interrupted a lot. Um, so there's like segments of a show which all kind of spoof different TV or particularly streaming and YouTube genres. And the and the and the idea is that it's all being edited at the last minute and the, and the Muppet that's editing it all Scooter. together is constantly... Scooter is it being inter- interrupted and everything um, and there's, there's sequences where they all chip in on diff- and I was working out I can work out with I, this must have been made before lockdown yeah. and yet some of it feels like it's been made It feels like a mix because it, part of it feels like yeah. they're distant like sort of remote right. interviews and then there's a bunch of puppets all in a room presumably not all being operated by the same person so yeah I was, I was baffled yeah. by that it is baffling. It is confusing. But you know what the problem is? It just isn't funny enough. It's not funny enough. So there's the odd moment that's kind of mildly amusing. As I say, Miss Piggy being an influencer was quite funny. Um, 
you know, there's the odd moment Kermit be popping up behind people's photo photos. It's mm. quite amusing. Photo bombing. Uh, by the way, Chris Hewitt mentioned in last week's uh, Empire podcast that the voice of Kermit has gone wrong. And I absolutely mm. agree that whoever's fucking voicing Kermit, it doesn't sound anything like the original Kermit. And that's a huge problem for me. It's really irritating. It's really annoying. Because Kermit was such an identifiable voice. It's all about that voice and that character. Now it's just like a blur. Who cares? And so I was really disappointed. It's not that funny. It's a bit, it's like overly contrived for a show that's, and it is, and what's improvised clearly is, so when Kermit interviews RuPaul, RuPaul is clearly improvising. And so, but what, in, in a way that backfires because they're not given funny enough material to yeah. bounce off the Muppet characters in it. So I was really disappointed. I'm with you. Time. I mean, I, I'm not pro Muppet. I'm not necessarily anti Muppet, but the Muppets fail my bell end test. Like, I don't like any of them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> God, the Muppets wow. do. <laughs> wow. I just, I've not got a lot of affection or love for the Muppets. If I'm honest with you, I'd take the Sesame Street gang any day of the week. But um, so, yeah, and I think the problem with this is it was really just all over the place, very hit and miss. It's not sort of properly scripted, so it isn't particularly funny. And I wasn't quite sure what they were trying to do with it. It also doesn't help that Scooter is my mm. least favourite Muppet and he's the first one who's on screen. But... Um, I, yeah, I, I I didn't find it amusing. I kind of felt for, for you know, for Tay Diggs and Linda Cardellini, and they've, they're all very game, as I think the best guests on Muppets are, but they just don't have an awful lot to work with. Also, and I have to say this, I fucking hate Miss Piggy. Like, she's so deeply, fundamentally irritating that I just... Hang on. <laughs> we, began, we began this podcast with you saying I was just like Miss Piggy. I mean, look, hating Dr. <laughs> oh, yeah. Floyd. <laughs> wow. And you just said, I fucking hate her. She's so fucking irritating. That is brilliant. <laughs> yeah, so, quote unquote, Miss Piggy <laughs> is not my thing. I just, yeah, she drives me nuts. I didn't like any of them. Um, I just, no, I just, I, if this had been so, so Muppets Most Wanted in the two most recent movies at least had the benefit of good screenwriting. Do you know what I mean? They had good material in there. And I think it gets past the Muppets you know, inherent bellendry to give you an interesting, fun story. And I think without that structure and without that kind of quality screenwriting here, you just end up with irritating puppets being irritating. Um, and that, for me, is what Muppets Now is. But I'm not a target audience, <laughs> let's mean, be yeah, honest. You, you let's are, be honest. This you're not is, wrong. It's probably worth mentioning. Kind of aimed at kids. Um, and you've got to think that they'll probably enjoy it slightly more because it is anarchic and it is stupid. Well, but a lot of stuff they reference, I guess, they're casting that quite wide, isn't it? So that they're entertaining for all ages. Yeah, you say, of course, it's partly aimed at kids. But I think actually the whole point of the Muppets right from the start was that it was going to be very entertaining for adults as well. That's the kind of one of the key elements of it. And all the references in this, you know, and... and I, I think the whole way it's done is, is is meant to appeal to adults as well, but it does not. <laughs> it, or at least did not in this case. Boyd and I say no, no to the Muppets. Uh, where, where does this drop? This drops on Disney Plus when, Boyd? On, on Friday. Friday. This drops Friday, yeah. the Muppets. Friday are not available Plus. now, but they are available on Disney Plus on Friday, which would have been a more cumbersome title for the show. So, uh, pick of the week, people. Terry's still not talking to me oh, after I mean, my missing is like... <laughs> So the the woman who slash character you fucking hate and find really fucking irritating. My pick would be um, Anthony. Thank you. Anthony's head and shoulders. Yeah, yes. it's like wow. Yeah. I didn't yeah. see Anthony, Sorry. so for me it's the Umbrella Academy. So make of that what you will. And I would also put in a vote for dummy. 
for the actual show if not for the platform. Yes, yes. If you get a chance to, to Queeby, oh, that yeah. does seem to me like it's the pick of that lot. But yeah, most dangerous game you can probably skip. Right. Shall we go uh, go out with a bang, and or specifically with a banshee? Uh, the banshee segment, named, of course, after the Jonathan Tropper show, Banshee, uh, where we take an old show and recommend it for our listeners. Who would like to dust something off from the archives first? I, will. I can. Oh, oh. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Um, so I want to Banshee Champions, um, which was an NBC comedy from 2018. It came, it was kind of meant to be, or people were putting it in the um, same ilk as The Good Place, but it only lasted one season. Hardly anyone <laughs> remembers it. Um, but I actually watched a few episodes on Netflix and I really enjoyed it. So this was created by Charlie Grandy and Mindy Kaling, who'd previously worked together on The Office and on um, Mindy Kaling's, um, what do you call it? The Mindy Project. Mindy Project. <laughs> um, he worked together on The Office and on The Mindy Project. Did you just so call the it The Mindy Project? <laughs> 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 I did, you did say Minji. You did, did say the Minji project. Did I say, did I say Minji? <laughs> you did. You definitely said Minji. Yeah. <laughs> this is going in the outtakes. Oh, yeah. oh my God. Okay. Charlie Grandy and Mindy Kaling, who worked together on The Office and The Mindy Project. <laughs> <laughs> you destroyed me. Oh, oh, um, now, the, the basic premise of this is it starts Anders Holm, um, who's a guy who owns a gym in Brooklyn, um, uh, and essentially one day, out of the blue, turns up Priya, played by Mindy Kaling, who basically drops off his 15-year-old son, who when um, either he was, can't remember if she was pregnant or he was a toddler, they agreed that he wouldn't be part of his life, um, but basically finds himself in New York with nowhere to live. And suddenly this guy who'd been a bit of a kind of bachelor guy about town, gym owner guy in Brooklyn, um, has a 15-year-old son to contend with um, that's been dropped off overnight. So I thought this was actually really quite funny. Um as you'd probably expect, it's about them kind of uh, their years of estrangement, getting over that, and how this guy's life is transformed overnight and their changing dynamic and relationship. Um, but I thought this was very sweet at times. Um, the performances were good, and I thought it was um, funnier than people gave it credit for, is what I would say. Um, the entire season one is on the Netflix, I believe, um, if you want to watch it. Mindy Project. The Mindy Project, yes. <laughs> the Mindy Project. Um, what was the show called? The actual show? Champions. Champions. Okay, good. Uh, I, I'm going to jump in here with... Mine. I'm going to do this very, very quickly. But this was this was off. This was recommended to me some by someone on on Twitter, and I realised that I had in fact seen it. Specifically, I went on holiday to Bali once, and instead of enjoying the holiday, I spent the entire time watching this mini series, um, just sitting in a room watching uh, John Adams, HBO's John Adams, which starred Paul Giamatti as one of the founding fathers as John Adams in this sort of six part. I think it was actually it was seven part, as I recall, a seven part show which ran. Uh, it was 2008, I believe it dropped, but. Uh, 
what got me thinking about this was 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 Hamilton, and I think someone originally had said, "Look, it's the actual West Wing." Like, but but the original West Wing. I was like, "Sold. I'll watch it." Um, I really like this mainly because it's a period of history, like American history, I didn't know an awful lot about. It's the founding of the nation, and it's sort of the first fifty years of the United States. But what makes this stand out really for me was Giamatti as John Adams and Laura Linney as his wife in this. Uh, there's loads of other good people in it. Stephen Delane's in it. Tom Wilkinson, David Morse, Danny Houston, Rufus Sewell, Justin Theroux's in it as well. Really, really great people. Um, but it's, it's a sort of lavish-looking period piece. Um, funnily enough, I remember at the time it got quite criticised for the casting. Like People didn't buy Giamatti as John Adams, which I find extraordinary. Like Maybe they just didn't like him as a leading man, but you know how good Giamatti is, and he is fantastic in this role. Uh, he really carries it. It's a sort of powerhouse performance. But uh, yeah, if you are interested in American politics, if you want to hear a little bit more about the founding fathers or sort of a bit of Hamilton without the rapping, then uh, maybe give John Adams a go. I'm sure it is available somewhere. Yeah, it was good. <laughs> there you go. That's point like, yeah, that's all right. That's right. <laughs> it's good. Yeah. Um, I've stolen mine a little bit. Well, I've got a two part banshee this week. And part one of it is stolen from Nick DeSemlian on uh, esteemed acting editor, is he, of, mm-hmm. of Empire Magazine, um, whilst someone's on maternity leave. Um, he tweeted about Garth Marenghi's Dark Place mm. um, and reminded me of the absolute brilliance of this show that only lasted one series back in 2004, created by Richard A.O.R.D., um, who's hosting the BAFTAs later this week, and Matthew Holness. And the whole conceit of it was that Matthew Holness's character, Garth Marenghi, was a, a, fiction, a horror author, an ultra nerdy horror author of kind of James Herbert type horror books. And that there was a kind of um, a filmed TV version of it in the 80s that was never aired. And that this is, and so he would introduce episodes of this incredibly badly made, absolutely hilarious versions of adaptations of his books. So that was Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. It's absolutely brilliantly funny all the way through Matt Berry's in it um, Alice Lowe's in it Matthew Holness himself so that's part one of it but part two of it that um, Nick didn't mention on Twitter was the kind of follow up sequel series so that only lasted one series Man to Man with Dean Lerner arrived um, in 2006, about 18 months later, also created by the same people. And this was, Dean Lerner was the publisher of Garth Marenghi's books, if you like, played by Richard Aoardi. And this was a chat show, a late night chat show in which... Dean Lerner, played by Richard Ayardi, interviewed a different person each week, all of them played by Matthew Holness, and starting with Garth Marenghi himself, and then going on to Steve Pissing, who was um, a Formula 5 motor racing world champion, who was a lot like Nigel Mansell. Glenn Nimron, Glenn Nimron, sorry, who was um, uh, a, like a kind of actor in shows like um, Star Trek and Red Dwarf and things like that. And Merriman Weir, who was a folk guitarist, etc., etc. And they were all at Absolutely hilarious. And the detail of these half hour one on one interviews, spoof interviews, were extraordinary. It's almost unbelievable they ever got commissioned, I have to say, because it was, on the one hand, incredibly self indulgent in a way, but brilliantly done and hilariously funny if you like that stuff. So, man to man with Dean Lerner. Now, I know you can get, you can get Garth Marenghi is on all four now, all the episodes. And if anyone has not seen it, they are absolutely fucking brilliant. Man to man with Dean Lerner is not widely available, but you can get it on DVD um, for a few quid on Amazon. We were talking about quoting earlier. Chris Hewitt and Nick DeSemlian quote Darth Garth Darth Darth Marenghi. That's a show I'd watch. Uh, they quote Garth, Garth <laughs> Marenghi's Dark Place endlessly, and it drives me insane because I did watch an episode of that at their behest, and you will be unsurprised to hear I hated every single second of it. 
So, yeah. Don't let that put you <laughs> off. Yes, Darth Marenghi's Garth Place. That's what I want to see. Yeah. Well, I guess that's it for another episode of the Pilot TV Podcast. We are, as ever, receptive to your five-star Apple Podcast reviews, even if they end up being like Harrogate Pablo's terribly polite one-star review, which simply read, not for me. Everyone moans about everything these days, and it's not helping. This wasn't for me, but they're trying their best. Thanks, Pablo. That's very <laughs> genteel. But a second star would have fucking killed you? I mean, honestly. <laughs> 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 we're all on social media at James C. Dyer at Terry underscore White and at Boyd Hilton as well as the show itself at Pilot TV Pod uh, myself Boyd and soon to be television legend Terry White will be back in your ears next Monday with another show though what will be on that show is at this point a mystery perhaps Deadline has the exclusive on that one we'll head over there now and check <laughs> Pilot out <laughs>